Okay, for our first message, we have the privilege of hearing from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and his message is entitled, The Ethics of Faith in Justice. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, like it always is on this Sabbath day. It seems like we were just together a few days ago, had a couple Sabbaths back-to-back with Pentecost last Sunday. And so here we are, Sabbath, June the 10th, and we are going to start our fourth segment in the series that I began this year entitled The Ethics of Faith uh, out of the Epistle of James. So today we're going to cover chapter 2 as your bulletin's show chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 and in the last few messages the last three uh, we covered the first chapter of James just to kind of give us a little bit of a a review some of the topics that we talked about in James chapter 1 that is brought to us by James was the ideas of our identity you know this message is this series rather is all about in particular our ethics of our faith how we live out our practical daily lives as Christians. And so some of those things that we saw in chapter 1 are going to kind of come up again. We talked about our identity in Christ. James identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus, our Lord. And that's who we are. When we accepted Jesus, we became a servant of Christ. We also see that James talks a little bit about trials. That's a big theme in James's gospel, or not gospel, but epistle. How we respond to trials in a godly fashion. And in the last message, to wrap up chapter 1, we talked about the importance of being obedient. And so what I wanted to do is just kind of review us of some of the things that we talked about in the last three messages, but also to mention that James chapter 1, those topics, talking about justice, Even in chapter 1, we're talking about justice today, talking about rich and poor, talking about the wisdom of being slow to speak and quick to hear. All of those things you're going to see are going to come back again. But see, James kind of introduces his letter, talks about these different themes that he's going to be talking about. And then in starting in chapter 2, the chapter that we are beginning today, he starts to go into a little bit more detail and in particular and, and actually gives some scenarios some situations. So in a lot of ways, we see that James chapter 1, which we've covered in the first three messages, is an introductory chapter that kind of just touches on some of the themes that he's going to be elaborating a little bit more in uh, the rest of the epistle. And so when we ended last message, there was an interesting little thing that James had to say. And this idea that he brings out in talking about keeping oneself from being polluted by this world. Keeping oneself from being polluted by this world. And in the context of what he was talking about, he was talking about vain religion. You know, things that people do that make them feel like they're religious, that that make them feel like they're closer to God or maybe somehow more righteous than other people. But in reality, they're neglecting some of the most important aspects of their journey with God. And in particular, he mentions visiting orphans and widows. And as in our own context, this context in the Roman world in the first century, those two different groups, orphans and widows, could, look to, could, look, could be looked at as some of the most vulnerable people 
and society. And so with that, James kind of continues that idea of about the, the vulnerable, the people in our society that maybe we don't always have the most esteem for as far as how our culture tries to make us think. And so I have two points today that I want us to get through. The first one is simple. See and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. See and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. And we're going to talk a little bit about how is the church, and I'm talking about not this church in particular, but the church of God, the, just the, you know, the church worldwide, no pun intended on that, but the overall organism of the body of Christ, is it influencing the world or is the world influencing the church? So we're going to see some of those ideas are going to be brought out. And my second point before we get to that first one is set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. And so these are two things that James really brings out. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read like what we always do. I'm going to read the first 13 verses in James 2. And then we're going to go in and talk about these two main points that I have just mentioned. So James, the second chapter, verse 1 starts out like this. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom rather, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that first main point that I just mentioned is see and treat people as God sees them, not how the world does. And so we can see, and, and probably really, you know, that's very familiar to our language. We read the Bible. We read what the scriptures have to say to us. And essentially, what we are seeing is, is that God is not a God of favorites. He doesn't play favoritism. And that is what James is actually saying. This word partial and favoritism, depending on what translation you are using, those two English terms for the Greek term that we're going to get into in a minute are used interchangeably. Do not be partial or play favorites. Now let's just think about that idea. What does that mean to be partial? What does that mean to play favorites? I think all of us have had, you know, have from time to time, we're partial to things. 
All of us in here might have a particular favorite food that we're partial to, a particular sports team that we're partial to, a particular music group that we're partial to, or a, a particular genre of music that we're partial to. We might be partial to specific genres of TV shows or movies. We have preferences in our physical lives, and it's normal, and there's nothing wrong with that. But God right here, through James, is warning us about showing those same characteristics when it comes to people, and in particular when it comes to his children. All of us ourselves have probably experienced at one time or the other in our life someone being partial towards us in the negative. And what I mean by that is someone maybe, you know, treating someone else a little better than us. Maybe there's some reason for that. Maybe they have a grudge against you. Maybe um, it be for religion. Maybe it be for you don't look the right way. Maybe it be for all different kinds of things. There's a myriad of reasons why someone might have shown partiality towards you. And then maybe you have done the same thing to another person. You know, as adolescents grow up, there is this big, you know, temptation among teenagers. I've seen it as a high school teacher. I think most of all of us in here have experienced it or maybe even partook of it before. Uh, that idea of there's certain groups of people that we don't want to be associated with. And maybe it's not necessarily because for the right reasons. Maybe it's because, you know, it's not cool. It's not the kind of group of people that you know, you want to be associated with because it might look bad among some of your other peers that maybe want to make fun of that group of people or want to look at, down upon that group of people. There's a myriad of reasons. But right here in this context here in the epistle of James, the Greek word that's used for partiality or favoritism is a descriptive term that literally means receiving someone according to their face. And that is the essence of judging, making a judgment based upon someone's external appearance. And this term actually goes back to the Old Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament. You can go to a bunch of different places. I'll just give you a few references. We're not going to go there. Psalm 82 to uh, Proverbs 18.5, Malachi, second chapter, uh, verse 9. But in almost all of these contexts, the way that this term is used is in the justice system or in some sort of justice system and is a reference to judges making judgments not based upon trying to actually be just, but rather being tempted to make a decision to pass a judgment in favor of wicked people, oftentimes being influenced by maybe the status or the wealth of that particular individual. And so I think all of us can relate to this in our own context. I mean, all of us have probably flipped on the TV, we've read in, in the paper, and we've seen maybe someone of some high status that maybe got mixed up in some trouble, maybe did some things uh, that they probably shouldn't have, and if they were just some average Joe, the full you know, extent of the law probably would have been exhausted on them. But because of their status, because of the amount of money they have, uh, they have more resources to pull from. They have a lot more wiggle room. They have a lot more things at their disposal to be able to get out of such things. I mean, everyone always remembers the O.J. Simpson case, right? Everyone always assumes that O.J. Simpson, whether or not that's true or not, it's just an assumption in a lot of people's minds. 
And I make no judgments on that case, but that's a typical thing you hear. O.J. Simpson, oh, yeah, well, we know why he got off. Well, because he was a, you know, a football star, Heisman Trophy winner, running back for you know, USC and then went on to play in the NFL. And so people associate his verdict of being innocent as associated with his status, with his wealth, with his popularity, with his fame. And so we are accustomed to this. You know, there's an interesting part of James that in that first verse. It says, do not show partiality. You know, do not hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of glory with partiality. And you might read that passage there, and you might say, well, that's really not significant. When you actually read, and what the Greek actually is bringing out, and what, you know, the way that this was written, and you read some commentaries and some people that have actually kind of dissected this, there's an interesting thing that can kind of be noted from James actually using the term Jesus, the Lord of glory, our Lord of glory. Because this term has often been associated with what's known as the Shekinah. Now, the Shekinah is a term that Jews used in Jesus' day, even to the present, and even before Jesus' day, to refer to the glory of God, and in particular, to refer to the presence of God. And what it goes back to is, if you remember, the tabernacle that the, the Israelites had, it was obviously led, the Israelites as a people, by the actual presence of God, by fire by night, as well as by a cloud by day. But also, whenever we see the consummation of the tabernacle, we also see this you know, explicit ceremony that took place uh, and this you know, uh, amazing uh, scenario where Moses actually got to speak face-to-face -face with God as a man speaks to a friend. And so through the, 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 the history, uh, they refer to this as the presence of God, the Shekinah. In fact, in some circles, at some point, they started referring to the Shekinah, the glory, the, the, uh, the dwelling, uh, uh, the presence as the actual name for God because they didn't want to, you know, take the Lord's name in vain. So that kind of became, some, in some circles, a replacement for actually just referring to God. Now what's interesting about this is the first chapter of John. If you remember what the first chapter of John says, it says, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we dwelt among him, and we beheld his glory. That's in verse 14. And so when you read that passage, and then you read in verse 14 where it talks about how Jesus literally pitched a tent among us, and we beheld his glory, that's reminiscent of that Shekinah glory, that presence with his people. And so what we see in the New Testament is, is that this idea of God dwelling among his people through you know, the Israel times, you know, of the Old Testament. And then, in the New Testament, we see that now God is dwelling among his people through this man, Jesus Christ. No longer are we just looking afar off at some fire in the sky or some cloud in the sky or in this room that we, none of us can enter except for one man one time a year. No longer is that the way that God dwells among us, but now God has come in the flesh and has dwelt among us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we see that, it's an interesting take because what we're seeing is that James is saying the Lord of glory that you have faith in, that has humbled himself even to the point of death, become flesh, became human. 
You hold faith in Him, and He died for you, but yet you're still going to hold on to this partiality. You're still going to hold on to favoritism. That's so uncharacteristic of God, and especially uncharacteristic to the event that Jesus subjected Himself to. And so with that in mind, let's just think about Jesus on earth. And think about that idea of favoritism. And think of that idea of how, how did Jesus see people? What was his view? And in particular, not just people, but how did Jesus see the slums of society? Let's go to Luke, the 18th chapter, a very famous chapter. We're going to read in verses 9 through 14, something we've all read before. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verse 9, pick it up verse 9 in Luke's gospel, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. At this point in time, this was a custom of the Jews, to fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The reason that I pointed this parable out, we're going to look at one more, is simple. Tax collectors were among one of the most hated group of people in first century Palestine. And to some extent, for good reason. Because they were extortioners. They were to uh, collect taxes on behalf of the Roman uh, Empire. And... Because that they did that, a lot of them engaged in taking a little off the top. In other words, this is what the Roman Empire requires. They might charge a little higher. Therefore, they can you know, take you know, that little percentage off the top of what the Roman Empire uh, requires. And so Jews looked at these people as, you know, some of them looked, that were Jewish, like, like Levi, Matthew, they, they couldn't stand them. Uh, they looked at them as being traitors to who they were, to their Jewish brethren. And so Jesus, he's doing this for a reason. He's saying, you know the way you think about people? You know the most you know, hated people's society? I tell you this. I'm going to give you a new way of thinking about people. I'm going to give you a new way of, of having a mindset about people. Look at this man. He, in comparison to the Pharisee, he's probably, you know... Nowhere near the amount of, uh, do, you know, the amount of uh, staying true and holy to, to, the, to the law. In other words, the Pharisee, very rigid, very, very on top of keeping all of God's law, very devoted, probably for a very long time. And here you have this tax collector that maybe at some point, who knows, it's a parable, that he is coming to realization that he's a sinner and that what he is doing is wrong. And so on one hand, you do have a guy that has been very faithful, probably, in keeping the letter of the law. And through doing that, he's missed the point because now he's beating his chest and saying, look what I've done. Huh, this tax collector here just bowing his head. 
I think, thank you God, I'm not like him. But in this scenario, God honors the tax collector over the Pharisee. Because the Pharisee was missing the point. The Pharisee had lost his humility. And this tax collector is doing essentially what God desires all of us to do over anything. Come to the realization that we are totally and holistically reliant upon him and that we are sinners and that no matter what we do, we always will be a failure to the letter of the law. Does it mean that we're not supposed to keep it, but it's supposed to mean that we are not to think of ourselves highly, like we are something special after, you know, maybe we have done certain things. Another passage is in Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. You've all heard of this one before, one of the most famous parables of Jesus, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Luke 10, verse 25. We're going to pick it up here. And it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And this is essentially a summary of what the law is. Every single law of God that's spelt out that we have been given through Scripture is all summed up in love for God and love for man. It's all pointing towards love for our fellow human beings and, of course, our Father in heaven. Verse 28, after this question, and your neighbor as yourself, or rather, verse 28, he's going to ask a question. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, here comes the question, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. They were avoiding this wounded man. They were avoiding him. Even though they were the people that you would probably think that, that would be the ones that would come to your aid and that would come to your help, they were avoiding him. But verse 33 says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was his neighbor, was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now there's a point to this story. And most of us have read this story and we've probably dissected this story. But if you don't know, in Jesus' day, in Palestine, the Samaritans was another group of people that were hated, and particularly by the Jews. In history, the legend was, and we don't know 100% how true all of this was, but the Samaritans were looked at as descendants of the remnants of the kingdom of Israel. So, for example, the kingdom of Israel fell. All right? They were taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, uh, the way they operated was when they took someone over, 
they would come into their domain and they would basically displace them. The idea was is that if we were going to take over a people group, what we want to do is we want to displace the people that were there because we don't want to get any kind of nationalistic uprising. In other words, if the people remain there, what if someone comes someday and like incites riots because they're all of a sudden becoming you know, nationalistic? And so they would remove the Israelites, the kingdom of Israel that had fallen in Samaria, which was the capital. They would remove them somewhere else and they would bring another group of people that maybe they had taken over their territory, they would move them there. Now, of course, you can't drive out every living soul out of any location. It's very difficult. And so some Jews, or Israelites, rather, is how we refer to them, world, you know, worldwide-wise, as far as people on earth, they refer to all of Israel as Jews. We know that there's 10 tribes, uh, or rather there's 12 tribes, and only one of them are referred to as Jews, technically, and a couple other tribes that kind of diverged with them, and the rest of the ten have always been remained Israelites, or just referred to as Israelites. But those other groups of people that came in there, they would intermarry eventually with, you'd have native Israelite people that did not leave, were not displaced, and people groups that the Assyrians had brought in there. And so the Samaritans were looked at as the descendants of those remnants of Israelites that stayed in Samaria, or the domain of the northern kingdom of Israel, and those displaced people from other places. And so they were hated, they were despised, and Jesus, once again, is giving this idea of the most despised people in the world. And he's telling people, you need to think twice about the way you accept cultural norms to drive and to uh, motivate and to influence the way that you think about people in the world. And so James, after this, gives the famous illustration. We've all probably heard it before. We've heard the story about how James essentially talks about this scenario where some person really fine clothing, fine gold, rings, all the, all the garb of the rich, of the wealthy, of the status, comes in. And you say, oh, man, look at this guy right here. Look at this person. And we need to get him up in the front row. We need to let him sit in the... In the you know, wherever it be, in the, in the greatest seat in the house. And then someone else comes in, maybe they have you know, holes in their clothes. Typically in the first century, people that were a poor, which is like 90% of the uh, population, had one tunic, had one uh, piece of clothing. And oftentimes, because you have one piece of clothing, you probably don't have a lot of time to wash it. Uh, and so oftentimes, it would look kind of grungy and dirty. And so... It would be very obvious that the biggest uh, sign of status and as, uh, of wealth in the first century was clothing. And so the person that comes in and looks poor, they're like, you know, you know, you go over stand in the corner by yourself. Or there's an interesting part where it says, you know, you can sit here. Not in a chair, but maybe on the floor at my footstool. And so in this scenario, what we see is not only is this person being dishonored, Physically, because he's made, you know, because of the way he looks, his status, he's having to sit in the lowly seats. But also, the language is, is that when you do that, you're not just physically putting him below you, but just by, you know, having him sit there, it, there's a spiritual or there's a metaphorical, you're below me. You're at my footstool. You're over here. And so, we have all probably heard of this story before. But the question I want to ask us is, who in our culture are the Samaritans? Who in our culture uh, are the tax collectors? 
What partiality does our culture drive us to have? You know, in the first century, and I keep referring to that because this is such, so, such a context-bound letter uh, that has universal principles, rather. Uh, what we see is, in the first century, is that that is a cultural norm, to uphold the wealthy, and the poor were kind of looked at in, in disdain. Like they were really nothing to so the ones of status. And so what we see here is we see the church, or at least some congregations that James is referring to, has been influenced by the world. So I want to ask us the question, what are some of the things in our own society, in our own lives, in our own context, in 2017, in the life that we have lived on this earth, what are some of the things that either ourselves are tempted to be partial towards? Because yes, wealth is still something that's around, right? We still see people that hold people of you know, fame and maybe wealthy status. And, of course, you know, I guess to their head sometimes, and sometimes we look at them as, okay, they're more important. Yeah, we want to be associated with them. But what are some other biases or partial leanings that we have? Think about people's nationality. We live in America. We're a very proud country. A lot of us are very patriotic. And there's all, it's all good, well, and fine. But does that nationality sometimes drive you to be maybe partial against people that are not from America? people that are not from this country. How about race? Racism still exists. Racism still, unfortunately, something that's a worldwide issue, especially in the United States. And we still see it. And so, growing up in America, uh, some of us uh, might have, in the past, uh, had to fight with some of those things. As far as either ourselves, we see it, or just maybe the way we were raised. Does people's race, does people's nationality influence you in the way that you look at them? And the way that you treat them, even if it's not outwardly, even if it's just inwardly, maybe in your head you think, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I really want to trust that person. They're different, they're unfamiliar to me. Now, I, I have certain ideas about, you know, what maybe they're like because of the context that you were brought up in, or because of the culture that you live in. Gender, another big one. I think that men, all of us probably need to affirm this, that it is true that sometimes in our own society we can see, it is historically validated, that women have been treated in an in inferior manner in a lot of contexts, in a lot of ways. Do, are you motivated uh, by gender issues as far as the way you treat people. Do you treat women differently than you treat a man based upon their gender, obviously? And so those are some questions I think that are relevant. And I know that sometimes they're uncomfortable questions. They're uncomfortable issues. But they're issues as the church of God, of a part of the body of Christ, that we have to address because they are relevant. And not addressing them is foolish because they do exist. And we're trying to, uh, you know, live up to the fullness and the stature and, and continue to grow in Christ. Even religion. People are even partial in religion. Now, it can be, you know, you're a different religion of me, of course. People are uncomfortable with that, and sometimes that might control how they might treat someone that's of a different faith. But let's just think about within Christianity. Oh, they're bad. They're Catholic. 
You know, they, they, they're cool with, like, you know, not wearing suits on Sabbath. I mean, something as small as that, even within our own faith, we have sometimes have to think about it, and I'm trying to get personal with this as far as to get us to think, even within our own denominational tradition, we see partiality. And maybe we're driven to be partial because maybe they're not from us. You know, it's not just partiality. I, I always like to coin this term, there's this groupism syndrome that people, human beings, have a tendency to have. Well, you know, we're, we're not from our group, you know. Uh, well, you can go to the other group, but I don't know if that's something that, uh, you know, we really condone. And you might need to ask permission by the pastor before you do that. Okay? They might start talking about worship bands. So, even our own religion, I always think of the movie, and I'm kind of getting off topic here, but it's not just all of these factors. It's not just race, it's not just nationality, it's not just gender issues, it's not just all these other things. It can even be just, people don't look right. I always remember the, the movie Forrest Gump, one of my most favorite movies of all time. It's probably not, shouldn't be my most favorite of all time. It's going to have some very colorful language in it, but I remember that movie uh, just because of this, the, the character that Tom Hanks plays. Uh, and the character, the simplicity, this you know, kind of like in a lot of ways, he's simple. But you almost kind of think to yourself, man, if I could just be a little bit more like that guy. He doesn't really think, look at the exterior. He doesn't really judge people based upon, you know, circumstances. He just kind of looks at everybody the same. But there's that story in that movie, if you've seen it, where he's got this walking condition. He's got a spine condition. He has to uh, wear these leg braces. And, of course, he gets on the bus, and every single person, because, I mean, he's looking weird. He's got, looks like a robot kind of. They're all like, you know, can't sit here, can't sit here, can't sit here because of what he looked like, because of what he had on him. So sometimes it's just, you know, the way someone looks that might drive us to be partial. And right here what we see, James tells us, do you remember we talked about how this word partiality in the Greek actually goes back to the Old Testament to refer to judges that were partial in their judgments based upon the world, not because they were actually trying to carry out justice. What we see here is that James says that you that practice this partiality and dishonor that poor man, you are the evil judge that you've always grown up learning about, that you've always learned about as far as wickedness is concerned. You have become the evil judge. And so with this, let's look at this last point, which James gets into. We're going to read James 2. Verses 8 through 13 again. Let me just read the point again. Set your eyes on God's royal law and live by it. James, the second chapter, verse 8. Reread this again just to get our minds back on the next section that he's talking about. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So right here we are introduced to this idea of the royal law. And so royalty obviously brings on the idea of kings. And of course, we know that in this society, as well as our own society, despite we are being told that we are to live by the law of the land, we do have two laws. We have the law of our land, but we have the greater law, the law of our 
court, the law of our land, the law of our government. And so in this context, we see that apparently some individuals, talking about partiality and looking at the whole of the letter, some individuals took it upon themselves to start maybe beating their chest and think, oh, I'm, I'm a good law keeper. You know, I do this, I go to the Sabbath, I'm always in attendance at, at you know, any holy day. Uh, you know, I never commit adultery on my wife or my, or my husband. I, you know, I don't murder my brethren. I don't murder anyone. And so despite that, something's been lost here. Despite that, they're thinking that just the exterior part, just not doing those things and abstaining from those things, is sufficient. But having ulterior motives, having you know, a heart that's not in tune with the intent of the law, which is love, was okay. And it's interesting that James talks about this because he's referring to, and we see Jesus as well refer to this, talk about Leviticus 19.18. In other words, this is a reference where God said, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. At the heart of Jesus' message, and we didn't really get into this because of time's sake, but if you look at James chapter 2 and pre a lot of the things in James, and you actually compare it to Matthew, the fifth chapter, as well as different parts of Matthew, we see that James is using material from Jesus himself that we find in Matthew. And so both in Matthew from Jesus as well as here in James, we see that the idea of the royal law is referring to not just one particular law, but the law of love, the intent of the law. Jesus made a point of that intent in Matthew 5 through 7 in his Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want to tell you, and I, looking at this, is that be careful to think of yourself maybe as being religious or I'm really doing good, I'm doing this, this, and this, and that. We maybe sometimes we're neglecting the things that are easy to neglect. That is, maybe still looking out for the orphans and the poor, looking out for the, of course, uh, slums of society, and more importantly, having a genuine intent. We're not going to go to these passages uh, right now, but we've all heard of the rich man, Jesus and the rich man. And the rich man says, you know, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And, you know, Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments, the inner life. Of course, we know there's a lot more to that. He says, you know, what's the commandments? And he mentioned don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man says, I've done all those things since my birth. I've always done those things. And Jesus says, yes, you have, but you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, the intent of this message uh, that Jesus was giving in this context was not that it's bad to be rich. But rather, the intent was is that this man still, despite keeping all of those laws, because of his wealth, did not totally rely on God. And so he was saying, you need to remove these things that are preventing you to holistically rely on God. Jesus also talks about the law never being done away with. Of course, there's an interesting parallel between Jesus saying, don't think the law is done away with, not one till or jot will be done away with. And he also says that unless you're Righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will not inherit eternal life. And so he goes on right after that to mention all of these laws that all of us have heard before, all of the Jews at that time had heard before, but he gives it to them in a spiritual way. In other words, he's saying not only now is adultery actually when you carry out the act physically, but adultery is now just by thinking about it, just by uh, you know, lusting after someone, uh, just being angry with your brother, 
And so Jesus magnifies this law, uh, this, this law and we see that this is kind of reminiscent to what James is doing. People that get in the habit of thinking to themselves, I'm really doing good, I'm really doing good, but really they're neglecting some of the more important things. And one of those important things, one of the things that we see throughout the entire Old Testament into the New Testament, especially in Jesus' life, is having love and a heart for the lowly among us, the poor, the spiritual downtrodden, the ones who are mourning, the ones that have lost people, uh, the ones that are just have problems in their life. That's where God's heart has always been. So God wants us to, you know, he wants us to reflect Jesus' characteristics in that, especially in showing partiality. And so as we wrap up this message, I just want to encourage us to continue to think about these things. Continue to look and search our lives, search our intents when we deal with people, when we get angry with people. Maybe, maybe our partiality is not necessarily because someone's of a different race or a different nationality or a different gender or something else. Maybe it's because we have a previous scenario with them, a previous incident, a grudge that we're holding that we've really never let go. And so with this, I'd like to conclude, and I'd like to give us our homework for next time, which is James, the second chapter, verses 14 through 26.